You and I will not make garbage. We're not going to make garbage, Paul. We're making we're making art here. You know, to be honest, maybe this is me getting old and crusty despite my best efforts not to. But I actually feel like there is a lot of garbage out there. Um, you know, just people constantly posting things that make it hard to sort through, even if it's good information that can end up feeling like garbage because it's so hard to parse it out, figure out what the hell, you know, where it fits in the whole grand scheme of things. Um, and I don't want to be guilty of that, frankly. Yeah. It's like, so there's, you know, you've got theory and you've got application and there's a big gap sometimes between what we're seeing these days. So, yeah. And you know, nobody in particular, just, just, no. there's a lot of it. There's, we're just as guilty of putting out tons of information all the time. Um, and it's really hard to sort through what's good, what's bad, where does it fit? How does it help you? Is it worth paying attention to? All of that is tough to do. That's right. And there's a variety of sources you can go to. And I think that's one of the things that can lead to issues if you're just stuck within one medium, getting all your information, like, you know, stuck to an Instagram reel or God forbid a TikTok, um, any one of those, <laughs> like, you know, you, yeah. there's going to be some context that's missed in some of that stuff. Yeah. We we're being trained to like, look for likes. Like that's what a lot of us are shooting for rather than shooting for giving actual good, useful information, useful being the key word there. So my question for you is, Chris, when's the next power company reel coming out when you're just going to be pointing at different <laughs> words on the screen? I'm going to, I'm going to make one as soon as we get off of this I and actually so. say nothing. Just, I'm just going to point at words that aren't actually even words yeah. and, and people are going to like it. Perfect. <laughs> Uh, so today is the the first in a series of a handful of episodes that we're going to do uh, explaining of season one and setting up of season two, um, a break from our regular format uh, that people learned in season one while we're getting season two up and running. And these are called Better Call Paul episodes, partly because I just don't like the term in between episodes, you know, and Partly because you are, in fact, really good at explaining and putting things into perspective. Um, so I call you when <laughs> I want that to happen. And partly and maybe mostly because I just really want to Photoshop your head onto Saul Goodman for the Instagrams. I've seen the previews. It's going to be good. <laughs> it's for the likes, man. It's all for the <laughs> likes. Uh, so how you been in the in the downtime? Uh, pretty good. Yeah. Getting outside, doing a variety of different things, not just rock climbing, but that's the joy of Chattanooga. There's a bunch of stuff you can do. Um, season's been good and long. Uh, we had like, it was funny, like three weeks ago, we had a burst of hot, it's like, what's what, 
last week of March when we're recording this and two or three weeks ago, we had like seventies and eighties one week and everyone freaked out like, Oh, season's over, but it's actually, <laughs> it's back to like, it's yeah. been pretty nice yeah. these last couple of weeks. So the last couple of years, it's gone on till almost May. So I'm sure there's some time for folks if you want to make your way down here and climb some boulders or clip some chains. That's really funny. It, it sort of happens that way every year and it happens on both ends of the spectrum. Like, an early warm break comes in and people are like, it's the season, you know, or a cold snap comes in in Chattanooga in the summer and people are like, the season is here. And then on the first day where it's too hot, everybody's like, season is over. Mm-hmm. We're so quick to jump the gun whenever we, whenever we hear anything. I remember Taylor was making fun of me because this past fall, I was like psyched to get out in September because it wasn't 80 degrees. I'm like, season's here. It's like first yep. week of September, we're out there sweating. It's humid. I'm like, no, it's great. It's great. I swear it's good. It's here. So yeah, it's a thing. Totally, man. Totally. I've been I've been down here just cherry picking days pretty much, you know, um, working a lot on plug tone, um, you know, getting that up and running and, you know, trying to make sure different stories are told than what, than what's normally out there in the the climbing world. Um, and also, uh, you and I have both recently started on our virtually empowered seminar, which will be mm-hmm. coming out this summer, assuming we get it all done. It's a big task, but, uh, Lana and I've been hard at work on it and we've got all the coaches working on it as well. So that's exciting. Yeah, that's going to be great. I'm really excited for that. All right. You ready to kick this thing off and get it going let's do it you clearly don't know who you're talking to so let me clue you in i'm paul corsaro i'm chris hampton lucky two guys are just guys okay and you're listening to breaking beta where we explore and explain the science of climbing with our skills you'll earn more than you ever would on your own we've got work to do are you ready 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 All right. Uh, Let's start with kind of a general overview of what we learned in season one. Um, Kind of what we learned from putting the whole thing together, um, from the reaction of people, and from reading all of these papers. And then later we'll get into some more specifics. Um, I'll start here with the number one thing I have is that um, climbing science – is not yet doing a very good job of building on the existing research. Um, Few people are, few researchers are, you know, we highlighted Ava Lopez and, you know, how she's building on her prior research uh, in season one. But the vast majority of climbing research sort of seems to be all over the place. And that's not necessarily a dig at climbing research or the researchers, you know, it's still relatively new and people have their own ideas they want to explore. And I just don't think we've had enough time yet for climbing research to like really consolidate and be on a path that everyone can agree on. Yeah, I th- I agree with that. Um, you think about research costs money and frankly, the funding probably hasn't been there at all for climbing yeah. until maybe these last couple of years. Now we're seeing the explosion of teams we're seeing climbing was in the Olympics. So, you know, maybe more national foundations are going to get behind putting money into research and improving performance. 
So maybe we'll see some improvement moving forward. And I will say the papers we did were, you know, some of them are a pretty long time ago. Yeah. So I'm sure as, cause we've gotten more papers sent to us in the off or off season from um, our podcast where there's some more recent stuff. So maybe we'll see a change as we move forward. And that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I hope so. And you know, there's also the fact that we were looking at a lot of older papers, you know, it was very heavily male centric, you know, there weren't a lot of women, there was definitely no diversity, you know, it was pretty yeah. all pretty much all white men, as far as I know. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're, they're tiny little studies, you know, 10, 12 people, most of the time. Um, so I do think that or I do hope anyway, that as we start looking at newer and newer papers, we start seeing a little bit of a a shift in that way, Mm -hmm. as well as researchers who've been in the game for a while and who are building more and more on the research they've already done, you know, asking the next question instead of a totally different question. Yeah. And the sample size one is always an interesting one. So I think that's like the first, I think, Criticism for, I think, almost every paper we shared was there were individuals who just, oh, sample size is small. I'm not going to pay attention to that. Right. Um, How all these start are with small sample sizes, especially if you're looking at randomized controlled trials or stuff where they're specifically looking at a single intervention and not pooling stuff together in like a meta-analysis or something, meta-analysis. It's hard, you know, it's going to be hard to find a huge sample size when you're really drilling down to just an individual intervention and seeing what changes. Yeah, totally. It, it also occurred to me about halfway through the season that it's really funny that we would get all these comments about, oh, only 10 people, this means nothing. But then very often those are the same people who would watch like the Emil Abramson video and be like, oh, this worked for this guy. I'm doing it now, yeah. you know? And I'm like, one person you know, in this very casual study in air quotes um, that he posted on YouTube and you're convinced, but this, this actual study of, you know, even though it was only 10 to 12 people, you're like, nope, not worth it. Yeah. And I think that can go both ways. I think it's good to look at everything with a little bit of skepticism, but at the same time, just because there's only a few people involved in exploring whether this thing actually works or not, there's going to be some signal in that noise. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good, that's a good way to put it. Um, You know, sometimes it's going to be more useful signal. Sometimes it's going to be more noise, but the, the role of us is to figure out what's the, what's the signal inside of all that noise. Yeah. Very much so. It's funny because I, I could I let myself look at the comment thread for each episode once, and that was it. Because otherwise, I just get lost and frustrated. So, yeah, I listen to yeah. I listen to each episode once after we post it, and then I look at the comment thread once, and then I'm out of there. So. I love it, man. I <laughs> it cracks me up. That's one of the things I actually have here as a general thing of that I learned is that people get really heated about science, almost like it's religion or nutrition or politics. You know, I see people get heated about those things in the same way and they, they bring their beliefs in and they really feel a way about this study. 
and and they just extrapolate wildly and take it as the absolute truth and there's there can be nothing else and it cracks me up every single time and I love engaging. Yeah, or yeah, you do love engaging. I've never said you, you like to poke the bear quite a bit. So I'll let you do that, and I'll be hiding in the shadows over here mm-hmm. still. Perfect, perfect. Just grumbling to the wall by myself somewhere. <laughs> do you think it's? Do you think it's like a? These studies have numbers, you know, and they've got this research attached to it, and it's a published thing, and that causes people to sort of divide like they either believe the numbers 100% like this is fact or they're like here's this thing that says it's fact I'm going to go the other way that's what it seems like to me I think it, it goes both ways I think it really just depends on where that piece of information fits with someone's kind of belief structure going into it yeah um they either oh this validates how I've been doing things so I'm just going to cling to this and this is the gospel and this is how I'm going to do this forever and tell other people they're wrong. And, you know, this is the tribe I sit in. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, if the other side, someone sees it and it maybe challenges what they've been doing in the past, they're going to look for ways to not let that force them to maybe think a little bit clearer about how they're doing things. And it's just easier to just reject it and be like, oh, there are only eight people in the study. I don't need to pay attention to this at all. This is just bad science or something like that. Yeah. Do you think social media is a good thing or a bad thing for sort of disseminating science and research? And and I'm going to ask this, remind me to ask this question of any of the researchers who we're going to talk to soon. Um, I like that. Because I think it's an interesting question. What do you think? I think it's a good thing in that it gets more information out there. And one of the really good things with social media is that it creates connections that would have been just frankly impossible to Mm. happen before. So, you know, it's good to get the information out there. I think the medium in which it's done takes away a lot of the nuance and context, which is a negative. I would say, even though I hate social media, I would say, (laughs) I would say, even though I don't, I'm not a fan of it as a thing, I think it's it's a net positive, I'd say. It's yeah, got more people I, interested in training. It's people have resources to find the rabbit holes they want to go down. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, things are going to rub people the wrong way. People are going to disagree with things. There's going to be discussion. Sometimes it's not very civil, but it creates that discussion and puts more of that out there. So yeah, I'd say it's a net positive, grudgingly. Yeah, I think I agree with you. And, you know, I don't necessarily like social media. Uh, it's I see it kind of as a necessary evil most of the time. Um, but I do I do try really hard to put some of the nuance into my social media posts. You know, I think mm-hmm. hard about it and try not to like make this statement as fact if it's not actually fact. Yeah. Um, so in that regard, I <laughs> and maybe I do it because I I want my recourse when the haters show up in the comments section and I can mm-hmm. be like, oh, you see that word maybe or often? <laughs> yeah, read that before you talk, you know. My favorite was the what does this uh, study not say? And that seemed to be <laughs> Yeah. That seemed to be a uh a little focus check for people. 
Yeah. It was hard for people to understand that, you know, that they have to read a thing Mm -hmm. before they comment on it. Yeah. Yeah. Crack me up. Uh, Anything in particular you have that you sort of learned or validated during this season? Um, more so, it actually reminded me of some protocols that we've been using a lot at Crux and in my training with people. So, you know, mm-hmm. Ava's hang, the original hang study we did, um, you know, that's actually showed up quite a bit in our training, especially in Chattanooga, just because we were in season when we did all this. And that really checked a lot of boxes for a low volume, you know, finger tr- training program. So that we've had a lot of success with that. Um, yeah, I think as a, like as a, an overall general, you know, sort of overarching thing that it, this season did that for me pretty well in that it reminded me of some things, mm-hmm. um, especially in this, you know, back to social media in this world of, you know, a new thing every five seconds, you know, and our attention is on it for 30 seconds and then we've moved on again. Um, it's really easy to forget that there are these things that work that we knew about a long time ago. And we have to be reminded that they work sometimes, you know? A hundred percent. And especially, I think we did a really good job of picking papers that kind of covered damn near the whole spectrum of things that can go into climbing performance. So just having Mm -hmm. that, reviewing that knowledge base. Boy, people people are going to hear you say the whole spectrum and they're going to be like, well, what about this dark corner of climbing that you didn't talk about at all. I'll let you answer that because I won't be reading the comments. So, (laughs) Yeah, I agree. I agree. In the first season, you know, the way we thought about it when we were planning was simply, let's take a look at some of the myths, the the kind of um, strong beliefs that climbers hold, um, the things that get talked about a lot, like flexibility, like finger strength. Um, so I think we hit on some things that maybe a lot of people thought they knew a lot about. Um, so in, in some regards, I think people probably were reminded of things that they had forgotten about or, or maybe we hit a nerve with some people and, you know, I think that's totally okay. In season two, I think we're going to go into some more surprising things. Um, and maybe things that are a little harder to parse out. Yeah. I'm excited for that. Cause that'll require a lot of nuance and, you know, a little more critical thinking than just, Oh, did this hangboard number go up or not? So, right. Um, right. I will say, so, you know, we both talked about how certain things reminded us of what we've done in the past. Like, Hey, we've used this in the past with success and this fits with our methods. Let's keep using this and how we work with people. Did you have anything come up out of the last papers we did that changed how you did something or maybe challenged what you thought in the past? Hmm. That's a, that's a good question, actually. Um, I don't think so necessarily. Um, no, I don't think so. I think it reminded me of things and, you know, asked me to take a step back and look at it, you know, with old eyes, so to speak. Um, but I don't think I necessarily, I don't think we went anywhere where I was really, really surprised other than, you know, by the fact that people weren't asking 
the next question very often. All a lot of the papers we looked at were kind of standalone, didn't seem like they were asking the next question from an old research paper. So, so I don't know that I did. Um, <clears throat> maybe the one thing I was most surprised by that I didn't quite realize, I had an inkling of it, is that it seemed like there's a, a larger gap than I suspected between the lab and the gym or the crag. Um, I knew that it was, uh, I, I knew there was a gap and I've sort of always tried to act somewhat as the liaison in the middle, um, which I know you have as well. Um, but it just, it doesn't appear that the researchers want things to be understood, at least in these papers. Um, you know, terminology is all over the place. Some of that is getting standardized, which is great. Uh, and we're going to talk about that uh, in a future episode. But it just didn't seem like the researchers were working together as much as I assumed they would be in a pretty mm -hmm. small community. Yeah. And I would hope to see as we kind of dig into the more recent papers that maybe we'll see a little bit more of that. Yeah, I hope so. Um, let's jump into some of the like super specific things that we learned since you were starting to ask about those things. I have a few. Um, let's jump into those. I got all these little pieces. Like, they're all part of the story, right? But they don't mean much on their own. But when you start telling me what you know, we start filling in the gaps. I'll have them and lock them before the sun goes down. Uh, one thing I think is really important to mention here is that you and I have been looking at research and science and, you know, sports science for quite a long time. Um, These weren't the first papers you ever read? <laughs> Absolutely not. I sort of wish they were in a lot of ways. Um, but we've been reading it and looking at it for a long time. And then we we sort of try and translate it into what we do and what we teach people rather than rather than continuing the terminology and the the hard to understand bits of it we try to take the little pieces translate them into layman's terms um and then give them to the athletes give them to the climbing community um not everybody has gone down this path you know so i do think a lot of what we talked about might have been surprising for people um I hope so anyway. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, if I go and talk to a good amount of athletes about the ATP PCR system, they're just going to look at me yeah. like, like I'm from Mars. Like it doesn't matter. Exactly. So I think taking that and making, like you said, putting it in a more simpler layperson's context is going to check a lot more boxes and have more meaning for a lot of folks. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's, it's like the term lactic acid, you know, you and I know that it's not actually lactic acid. Um, or someone will tell us immediately if we <laughs> Someone will tell us immediately. But even that study that decided it's not actually lactic acid that's building up, that's causing this, the, the researcher who did that study said, well, the coaches have been doing it right all along. Anyway, we were calling it the wrong thing you know, but the coaches were doing the right protocols. They were effectively helping their athletes get to where they wanted to be. So 
this this is the researcher's problem. It's not the practitioner's problem. And if if people want to use the term lactic acid and but they're still doing the protocols that are helping them reach their goals, I'm fine with that. I'm 100% fine with calling it lactic acid. Yeah. Yeah, it doesn't matter. Like as long as yeah. Do things right and as long as your metrics improve, you're probably on the right track even if you're a little off on the terminology. Yeah, totally. So a question for you, since you threw this question at me, was there something that was surprising for you that changed how you're coaching? I would say the biggest one that jumped out to me, I was going back and reviewing all the papers we looked at, uh, mm-hmm. was it did change how I talked about creatine with people, mm-hmm. especially mm-hmm. Um, after I threw out the, I'm not a doctor nutritionist, so make sure you talk to someone first. Yeah. But um, it... It has more, I actually just talked to someone about this this morning, actually. I think it has more applicability than I gave it credit for at first in Mm. terms of recovery and just stretching performance out over a longer period, things like that. So that was one that that had me kind of change my thought on it. That was probably the newest thing for me out of everything that we looked at. And the only reason this was more of a reminder for me was because I had talked to Shannon from Gnarly um, relatively extensively and given it another chance, you know, in the like 12 months before we started this podcast. So for me, it was pretty fresh in my head. Mm-hmm. Uh, if we had started the podcast a year earlier, it would have been a totally new thing for me. Yeah. So yeah, that was the big one for me jumping out at all that. All right. Let's talk about some of the things that we were reminded of. Um, how about we start with fingers? Um, for me, this season really just validated that a lot of different protocols are effective for building finger strength and, and endurance. And according to what we've learned from Ava in episodes one and 10, the grand champion of finger training is going to be large edge, heavyweight, um, trying to gain pure strength as opposed to a repeater style workout. But repeaters can also be effective. So, And I think uh, another thing that jumped out from those studies is the use of auto-regulation in there too. Mm-hmm. Um, that's That's been much more used recently because of that. It just lets us fit things better to where someone's coming in recovered-wise and still getting a quality session, putting in the effort we're looking for, but just making sure we're not doing too little or too much in an individual session. Yeah, that's an interesting call actually on terminology. Um, You know, I don't think Ava used the term auto-regulation in the paper. Maybe she did. I'd I'd have to go back and look. Um, But it's definitely now a buzzword as Mm -hmm. if it's a new thing. Right. Lots of people are like, oh, brand new idea. You know, this is cool. This person invented it because I saw them post it on Instagram. Uh, But really, it's been around for quite a long time. And uh, good athletes have been using it for quite a long time. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that's been, that was the biggest, probably the biggest thing I took away from the finger strength stuff is how useful autoregulation and those subjective difficulty measures uh, can, how, how effective they can be in a training plan. Yep. I also have a note here that says when building a protocol, common sense works pretty well. 
but I don't know what everyone else's common sense is like. So maybe I'm not <laughs> going to throw that out there. I saw some comments in, you know, on some of the posts that lead me to believe that maybe not everyone's common sense is up to the task. So <laughs> maybe we'll just say consistency is a good bet when it yeah. comes to fingers. I can get behind that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, anything else from you on fingers? Mm, I think it still shows the effectiveness of hanging, hangboarding. Um, I think. Yeah. Hangboarding sometimes in the last few years has been viewed as the old method that's no longer useful or you need to do something different. I think just going yeah. back and looking at this information, like it still works. It's still a thing. It's for a lot of people, it's going to be a very easy thing to add to their routine. Like you can put it up on your door frame, like every climber had in the house they were renting back when they were mm -hmm. 18 years old. I think just because it's been around for a while, and you know, we've touched on this a couple times this episode, just because it's been around for a while, doesn't mean it's time to throw it out. Right. Totally. And we don't necessarily have to reinvent the wheel. We can still get strong the way people did 30 years ago. Yep. Very much so. Let's move on to injury. We talked a, a little about injury in this season in a couple of different ways. And, you know, I'll throw out the disclaimer here that neither of us are medical professionals. So, you know, take any of this with a, a grain of salt and definitely talk to a medical professional instead of just hearing this podcast and assuming that we've given you good advice. Mm -hmm. Um we reserve the right but, to be wrong. Exactly. Always. Every single sentence I say, I reserve that right. <laughs> um, episode five, the shoulder study, I thought was really valuable. Um, it, it gave me renewed validation that we can't rely solely on MRI scans and mm -hmm. doctor evaluations to tell us everything about an injury. You know, how it's affecting us and our climbing is a, a bigger part of the equation than a lot of people want to admit. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's, you know, it's shown that, yeah, that just the MRI or just the imagery using that solely just to make your decision may not be taking into account a lot of other factors that, that matter. Mm -hmm. you know? And you can still climb yeah. hard if your shoulder bothers you. It might, you know, you might need to do some management of that whatever way is appropriate after consulting with the right people. But a bad outlook on an MRI finding isn't the end of the world. Yeah, totally. And it, you know, I think it also reinforces the idea that um, just because we are, um, we're beating our shoulders up when we're climbing and, and that doesn't mean we're doing it wrong. No. You know, all the climbers they looked at in this study had abnormalities, so to speak. You know, I'm, I'm putting that in air quotes again um, in their scans. And we weren't built to be rock climbers. That's not that's not what we've evolved to do. There just aren't enough of us to affect evolution in that way. Um, so we're going to tear things up and that's how it goes. But that doesn't mean we have to stop. It doesn't mean it's going to affect our performance. Um, I think it highlights the importance of doing something other than climbing to build resilience and the yeah. ability to have movement options in a bunch of different ways, um, whatever way fits for you, whatever you enjoy, whatever you see results with. But I think it highlights the fact to address everything holistically and not just rock climb. 
That's for sure. Yeah, totally. Totally. And, you know, that brings me sort of to pain. Um, they talked a little about pain in that study and pain is not a concrete thing that's directly linked to injury. Um, it's how a lot of us are taught, um, but it's, it's not the truth. And I think the beautiful thing there is the, the treatment for pain or injury is essentially pretty close to the same. Um, slowly load the injured or painful area until you're back to where you want to be. That's appropriate progressive overload. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's a fucking beautiful thing. Yeah. We also talked uh, in episode six. um, It's the Keith Barr paper Mm -hmm. about minimizing tendon injury. I do think, and this is something that had been brewing in my head and I had been doing a little bit, but I really like the idea of incorporating a connective tissue health session, um, including timing your nutrition to benefit your connective tissue. Um, There's going to be all sorts of argument about, do we use collagen? He used gelatin in the study. What's the appropriate collagen? What's the appropriate gelatin? Can I just get it from lime jello? You know, there's going to be lots of arguing about this. But the point is, if it's as simple as timing some nutrition intervention can help your connective tissue be healthier, then why not do it if it's not costing you a fortune? Um, it was a case study. So I just viewed this as worthless and saw no information from it. <laughs> but uh, no, no, seriously. Um, yeah. You said the nutritional intervention is a really important part of this, I think. And um, yeah. I also think it highlights one of the good direction I think I've seen in some of the training social media that's out there is addressing some of this tendon health, some of these tendon health issues. I think it seems people are taking this body of information, uh, all of other Keith Barr, the other tendon researchers work. I think people are taking that overall in the right direction. I think that that's been cool to see as well. Mm -hmm. It seems like they're using the base and most of the stuff I'm seeing seems to be in line with this. So that uh, isometric or addressing the stress shielding. In the beginning of this episode, I asked you if social media is a good or bad thing. And this is one of the good things of social media. It's it's spread these sort of protocols and these ideas, these interventions um, to the masses. Um, mm-hmm. Whereas papers, research studies just sit on ResearchGate or wherever. Yeah, we can thank the publishing companies for that because they're awesome at yeah, making that available. <laughs> exactly so i do appreciate social media for that uh let's talk about flexibility and mobility we had a couple of episodes about um flexibility one uh the myth of power loss one more as a metric for climbers um I think this is one of the most pervasive myths and I, I still see it out there constantly. Like, don't stretch before you do this. You're going to lose <laughs> all your power, you know, as if all of a sudden you're relegated to just like tortoise-like movements because you stretched yeah. for 60 seconds. Um, and it, this just, you know, validated my thoughts of if you need to get into a difficult position for you while climbing, um, stretch for it. Even even prior to your session, if you want to stretch for it, do it. The the negative effects uh, of stretching on power are 
not only far outweighed by the positives, but they might not even matter so much for climbers since we aren't expressing pure power like jumpers and sprinters are. Yep. And even uh, from the papers we reviewed, they gave us some pretty solid heuristics on if you wanted to stretch and were still worried about maybe some of these performance losses, there are ways you could still address that mobility in ways that didn't seem to drop the power production or whatever. So, you know, it gave us actionable information too, as a, as well as looking at a big, this is, this is a review we looked at, I believe for this one. Yep. So, you know, it combined a bunch of studies and gave us some pretty solid advice on how to go about things while still making sure we're addressing the concerns if you have them. Yeah. And that's episode three, if you're interested in going back to look at that. Um, I think it's a really great example of how research can become dogma, you know, even when new evidence is presented. I, I put a chart out on the Instagrams um, that sort of showed the timeline of back in the 80s, here's what we believed, in the 90s, here's what we believed, in the 2000s, here's what the new evidence said, and now here's what we're seeing. Uh, it, it hurts me to say 2000s was the past. Oh, it is. That was 20 years ago. <laughs> it is. Fuck. Um, so I, I think that's a great example of research becoming dogma just because of the first big paper that was published and then people not paying any more attention to what the research actually says. Yeah. And I think going back to this ongoing theme of social media that seems to be filtering into this, uh, this episode, like I think that could be a potential thing to be concerned about with how quickly a certain paper mm -hmm. can be shared these days, like people just all jumping onto this one train of thought and immediately invalidating all the others without really looking at them. So that could be something to consider if you're getting most of your information from these huge information pools to make sure we explore these other options as well and don't just automatically write them off because of one piece. Yeah, totally. Good advice. Uh, and then we also looked at flexibility as a metric for climbers. And I, I frankly, I think that paper was really fun. I hope someone builds on it uh, in some way because it – I do think there's a lot of room there uh, to help climbers out. And we, we do not have a good – flexibility or mobility metric in our assessment and the adapted grant foot raise from from that study is probably our best option right now mm -hmm. and it's something we should consider adding into our assessment panel uh, for climbing specific hip mobility um, but otherwise there wasn't a whole lot found and i haven't i my personal experience is that i haven't seen great ways to tell whether a climber is going to be a good climber due to flexibility. Yeah, no, there's going to be need to be some refinement there if that's going to be overall useful, I think. But it's cool people are going down that train of thought. Yeah, know. and I hope I hope that continues. For all you out there actually doing research, that could be an interesting path to follow. I'd read it. Totally. Um, last thing I have here in my notes is nutrition. And we didn't go down the nutrition rabbit hole much at all. I mean, it's a fucking gigantic rabbit hole. And I mentioned at the very top of this episode, it's, it's like religion to some people. People get heated about nutrition and, you know, especially protein and animal protein sources. Um, so <laughs> that's a... That's a rabbit hole we may never go completely down uh, unless we have some esteemed guests who can talk more, you know, 
more intelligently about it. Um, yeah. <laughs> but we did talk about creatine, like you mentioned, and this was mm-hmm. the surprising one for you. And mm-hmm. episode nine, uh, for me, reading the big study, uh, the big review, and the uh, the IRS International. I think it's the ISSN, International Society of Sports Nutrition, something right. like that. Yeah, okay. That's it. it. Basically, that says if you want or need the supplementation, it's a pretty safe bet, number one, for athletes, um, which I think is great to know right off the top. It's like the top or one of the most researched yeah. supplements, supplements out there. So, And even for people in a strength to weight ratio sport, like climbing uh, or gymnastics, something like that, it's a pretty safe thing to try. And particularly for aging athletes of which I am a member, um, you know, more strength equals more resilience, faster recovery equals more time to train or engage in your sport, more time to train equals more strength, which equals more resilience and so on and so on and so on. So for me, it's a no brainer. Yeah. And the strength part is part of the strength to weight ratio. It's not just the weight part. Right. Too, yeah. So. Thank you for saying that. That's an important thing to keep out there, I think. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Question for you. Are you going to try creatine now? I know you said you're, you're a responder. You, you gain quite a bit when you try it and you're silly ass strong as it is. So um, is it something you're going to try? Do you think? Probably not right now. Um, I just haven't noticed a big recovery issue for me. I don't know if that's just my schedule or how I get out or how I do things. Um, I'm usually able to recover fairly well. Um, I think if I start realizing that I'm not recovering or if I start stacking a bunch of big days together, Mm -hmm. maybe that's going to be something to experiment. But right now I'm still pretty happy with where I'm at in terms of my nutrition and how I'm feeling. Yeah. I suspected you would answer that way. And that's why I asked, because I think it's important for people to recognize that just because a thing is effective doesn't mean you have to use it. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, there might be just tons of evidence that this thing works really well, but if what you're doing works, maybe you don't need that thing. Yeah. Don't need to make a change if things are okay. So I'm sure there's probably a billion other things I need to change in my training because I'm being hard-headed and doing what I want to do, not what I need to do. But um, yeah, I think I'm all right on the creatine side of things right now. Yeah. Uh, Anything else you want to say about season one and wrapping it up before we, you know, move on next episode to prepping people for season two? Man, I think we covered it all. Like I was pretty, really happy with the selection of papers uh, we did. I think I think we both got a lot out of it this mm-hmm. season, like selfishly, as opposed to as even we got a lot of episodes out for people. I love that. I was stoked how p- people liked it for the most part. Mm-hmm. So said, I'm, I'm new to the podcasting game. So this was a cool experience for me to do this first season. Um, I'm excited for the next one and excited to dig into some more, like you mentioned in the beginning, some more complicated aspects of movement performance and all that. Yeah, same. And, you know, I, I think this second season will probably be a similar format to the first. Um, but we do have some plans down the road to maybe switch up formats, maybe go down a rabbit hole on, you know, one factor of performance. Maybe, um, we'll do some sort of review episodes where we're looking at a bunch of papers on one topic. Um, so we've got some plans here. Um, I know people are still finding the podcast. You know, I look at the number 
numbers occasionally and uh, the downloads are great. And sometimes we have these bumps in downloads that I don't know where I come from, but um, people are definitely still finding the podcast. So welcome if you are new to this and if, you're, if you've been here for the whole season and are psyched for season two, thanks for sticking with us. Um, this is all selfish for me, Paul. I, <laughs> I, you know, it's fun for me to get to talk to my colleagues for an hour and, you know, really just go on these deep dives. I'm, I'm out here in the middle of nowhere, Wyoming. So uh, it's really great to have that time available. And, you know, I thank the internet for that, for sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. And you can find both Paul and I all over the internets. Um, Paul may not be on social media quite as much as me. Uh, by following the links in your show notes, you can find Paul at his gym, which he definitely is at more than he's on Instagram, uh, Crux Conditioning in Chattanooga, Tennessee. If you have questions, comments, or papers you'd like for us to take a look at, hit us up community.powercompanyclimbing.com. Don't forget to subscribe to the show, leave us a review, and please, please tell all of your friends who are confused and overwhelmed by the amount of jumbled and conflicting training info out there that you have the perfect podcast for them. We'll see you next week when we bring on a special guest to discuss statistics, how they relate to research, and whether or not they mean what you think they do. Thanks for listening, y'all. It's done! You keep saying that, and it's bullshit every time! Always! You know what? I'm done! Okay? You and I, we're done. Breaking Beta is brought to you by Power Company Climbing and Crux Conditioning, and is a proud member of the Plug Tone Audio Collective. For transcripts, citations, and more, visit powercompanyclimbing.com slash breaking beta. Let's not get lost! in the who, what, and whens. The point is, we did our due diligence. Our music, including our theme song, Tumbleweed, is from legendary South Dakota band, Riff Lord. This is it. This is how it ends.
Don't nod your